Artificial intelligence will completely transform our world. But what is AI? Why will it affect you? And how can you and your business survive and thrive through the AI revolution? Welcome to AI and You. Here is your host, author, speaker, and futurist, Peter Scott. Hello and welcome to episode 32. In episode 27, I took you through the history of my TEDx talks and what it was like getting to the red dot and what I look for as a curator now of the technology track of TEDx Bear Creek Park. In this episode, I'm going to deconstruct my TEDx talk that I did for them on February 29th, 2020, and give you more of the information that gives a broader background to what I discussed there because there was only 13 minutes. Now, it was carefully crafted and it is certainly not designed to require explanation. But because I've obviously got a lot more to say than I can fit into 13 minutes, I can tell you a lot of things that deepen your experience of that. Plus, I'll give you insights into how those things made it into the talk and why, so that you get an additional experience of what it's like to craft a TEDx talk. So I'm going to do this by giving you part of the talk and then annotating it and going on until we get through it. Here we go. The title of this talk is How to Save Us from Being Left Behind by AI. Here's how it starts. We're obsessed with the future. This reveals a fundamental capability of human beings that we can perceive the flow of time. We know we're coming from the past and heading into the future, and we really want to know what's waiting for us there. So this is obviously designed to grab your attention with We're Obsessed and then introduce the fundamental theme of this talk, which is about the future. Fun fact, in an earlier version of this talk, I said it was a unique capability of human beings, but we have a neuroscientist at TEDx Bear Creek Park, Ryan Darcy, and he said, no, actually, there are some animals that do have a perception of the flow of time. So it wasn't important that I point out human exceptionalism there, so I changed it to what you heard. So this has set us up that this is going to be about the unknown future. Now I go on. Who better to ask about that than futurists, right? But when we ask them about our future with artificial intelligence, something frustrating happens. Those futurists disagree. Not by a little, but by as much as they possibly could. One group predicts AI creating a utopia, curing everything from disease and cancer to aging and death. Another says that AI could wipe us out. Now, although the audience doesn't know it yet, this talk is going to be about inviting them to become futurists. So this is setting up very early that we're talking about futurists and saying that the ones we have right now are not doing a very good job because they are in such disagreement. And as you know, if you've listened to my podcast, read my book, it is entirely accurate that futurists who talk about artificial intelligence cannot agree whether they're going to precipitate a utopia or wipe out the human race. That's why the tagline on my book is we're heading for utopia or Armageddon. Which one will we choose? 
And the frustration that I speak of there is very well placed because that's what I feel and what anyone who studies these predictions feels as well. You heard me talk about some of my frustration with predictions in episode 24. It's quite possible, if not likely, that we will get both, by the way, that we will get a utopia and an Armageddon. So I go on with a little joke. You know, if your job is to predict the future, it seems to me that you ought to be in a little more agreement about something as fundamental as, I don't know, the survival of the entire human race. They literally couldn't be further apart. The only other experts I know that are that far apart on anything are the ones who write the investment newsletters I should probably stop reading. Okay, so we have now well and truly cemented the idea that futurists can't agree at all about the future with artificial intelligence. And yes, most of my financial investment newsletters do seem to boil down to saying things like, if this stock meets resistance at this level, then it will go down. But if it finds support at this level, it will go up. Which seems to boil down to saying, Yes, it's going to go in one direction or the other, whichever it is, remember you read it here first. But having gotten the audience laughing there, hopefully, this gives the opportunity to make a serious statement and push it in while they're laughing. Here we go. Why are futurists in such disagreement about something so important as a threat to our very existence? Because this is not like other existential threats like, say, an asteroid coming towards the Earth. Unless you're one of the people I've worked with at NASA, or a billionaire with your own rocket company, you're not participating in the solution to that problem. So here I've introduced a key term, which is existential threat. And because words and time count in a TEDx talk, I've managed to do it by tying it directly to threat to our existence. Now you know what that term means. And I've given you an illustration of what we normally mean by existential threat and at the same time established some of my credentials because 99.99% of the people listening to this talk aren't going to know who I am. Why should they listen to me? I've got to get some credibility in there to begin with. Going on, I say, But because artificial intelligence has the potential to rival or surpass us at decision-making, our future with it depends very much on what we all do. And that is something the futurists have not predicted. So here I've introduced a thesis that you've heard me talk about before. And that is that the reason for this unpredictability is that our behavior as individuals and collectively is going to become far more important than it usually is for solving existential crises. We are all involved in this. And here I'm letting the audience know you are going to be part of the solution to this problem. It's not going to be up to experts. It's going to be up to all of us. Now they know why they should keep listening. I'm going to tell them how to save the world. Let's go on. So what do we do about it? I've worked with many people around the world on that question, from schools to boardrooms, and their reactions have ranged from anticipation to terror, but mostly also overwhelm. Where do we start? We start by shifting our thinking. Now, this is very much born from my experience in speaking to a huge variety of groups in different countries and the experience that talking to schools, they generally do react with anticipation and in boardrooms, they generally do react with terror. But everyone has the experience of being overwhelmed. This is such a huge topic. What do we do about it? 
And here I have the opportunity to not only introduce the fundamental thing that we have to do about this, which is change the way we think, because it's not possible at this stage to get more specific, but also tie into the tagline of TEDx Bear Creek Park, which was on that date, a shift in thinking. Brownie points for doing that. Going on. The first shift is to stop seeing futurists as this small group of authors in turtleneck sweaters on talk shows, but instead to realize that we are all futurists because we are all continually predicting and creating the future. It's just that most of us have been doing so unconsciously. All right, so here I am rolling out the most important, the key message of this talk, which is that the audience, everyone listening, is going to be a futurist, to think of themselves as a futurist. And therefore, they have to stop thinking of futurists as being the small group of people they are accustomed to thinking of. And I'm using a stereotype view of a futurist as someone in a turtleneck sweater, thinking of Carl Sagan here, who did for the turtleneck sweater what Jaws did for a shark repellent. Fun little story here. When I first delivered that line at a practice session, I looked at my clothing, looked at the audience and said, maybe I should wear a turtleneck sweater. And they said, oh, yes, you should. And then the next time I did that and had a turtleneck sweater on, it got a a lot of laughs. So then when I delivered it after that, I would look at myself and pause and shrug and go on, which also has the benefit of positioning me as a futurist. So the audience has an understanding of what my role here is. So this may have rocked the audience's world here, the suggestion that they're futurists, that they have been responsible for the future all along. They just didn't realize it. Going on with the talk. But we can no longer afford to remain unconscious. Not when technology is evolving exponentially, and that's about to become a big problem. You see, it always used to be that technology was a slower one in our partnership, like we were dragging a three-year-old through an airport trying to make our flight. Come on, hurry up, store my files faster, send my emails faster, dial my calls faster. But now the tables are turned. Technology has caught up, and now we are the three-year-olds. Now, that metaphor is one that I had immediate past experience with, having taken two three-year-olds through airports on quite a few occasions, and it also lends itself to some humorous body language on the stage. It also illustrates something that I believe, and the figures that I'm going to cite will bear it up, that we did used to think of technology as being slow. We were continually trying to make it faster to keep up with our demands, but now it's the other way around. Now technology is driving us, and this is a development that has only recently happened, that its speed has surpassed the rate at which we like to do things. Back to the talk with an illustration now. The faster it goes, the faster we go. The alarm rings, you get up. The microwave beeps, you eat. Siri says time for work, you leave. The car says turn left here, you do it. The phone rings, you answer it. Email arrives, you read it. Okay, everyone can relate to most or all of those examples there of how technology is setting the pace of our life and I'm going to amplify that. Now I'm going to back it up with some statistics. Studies show that the more technologically developed a country is, the faster the pace of life. That we're walking 10% faster than we did 10 years ago. 
that the median time to respond to an email is now under two hours because we check our email and messages on average every six minutes. 81% of US employees check their work email outside of business hours. Over 40% of our day is spent multitasking. Now, those are all studies that I had to provide Ted with the citations for because they are very strict about that sort of thing. And now I'm going to crack a joke and use that as the opportunity to introduce a cry from the heart. So if you make it all the way through my talk without checking your phone, congratulations, you're bucking the trend. Who said it had to be like this? We did. We collectively made up those rules. Unconsciously, for the most part, to be sure, but that's what unconscious futurists do, right? We did that. So there I've used a speaking best practice, which is after cracking a joke, getting the audience laughing, you can then deliver something serious that they will listen to without feeling it being heavy. She showed me this in particularly Sir Ken Robinson's talks. He does this all the time to tremendous effect. And when I say, who said it had to be like this? That is very much coming from my heart. That was a cry that I uttered and just put into the talk and it made it all the way through. But then I remind the audience that if they are futurists, they did this just unconsciously. The first step in being able to change something is realizing you have the power to do that. Now we have a segue. And while the human brain isn't getting any bigger, there's no limit to how fast computers could go. When AI is a million times faster, what could it be doing? Automation isn't only for mundane, repetitive tasks. AI is already performing solid, white-collar, professional jobs you need a sharp, analytical mind for, like radiologist and paralegal. Now, that's the extent of my allusions to exponential growth there by just saying that AI could be a million times faster. At the rate of growth of Moore's law, that happens in 30 years. It's going to be within the lifetimes of most of the people listening. But you realize you can't imagine what life would be like when computers are a million times faster. And my reference to human brains not getting any bigger is accompanied with some hand gestures around my head. In an earlier version of the talk, I did refer to the difficulty of childbirth with the size of the human head and asked, you mothers out there, how would you feel if that baby's head had been even 10% bigger? It was suggested to me that that was not the right time to mention that, and plus half the audience at least couldn't relate. Besides, it's already clear that human brains aren't getting any bigger because they've got to fit inside our skulls. We have a limitation. Computers do not. Now I'm going to go on with a little skit. As AI evolves, it will make increasingly sophisticated decisions. How might that turn out? For an example, let's imagine, not too far in the future, the CEO of a major corporation. Let's call her Jill. Sitting in her office, when a device on her desk about the shape of a high-tech hockey puck sounds a chime. Ding! It is the enterprise AI calling with a question. Okay. This is one of the more visual parts of the talk, and I'm play-acting this by moving to a different point on the stage that's reserved for this skit, and I'm using my hands to gesture that I here am Jill sitting at her desk, and I'm making a circular motion with one hand to suggest that there is the puck 
which is intentionally chosen to make you think of like an Amazon Echo Dot, because that's one of the things that we're used to listening to AIs talk to us from. And I'm going to act out the part of the AI. Hopefully, voice quality alone will give you the difference. <clears throat> Ma'am, it is nothing if not polite. Ma'am, Real-time marketing surveys show increasing interest in the Southeast among the 37 to 49 demographic in an extension of our secondary product line. Should I begin the design and marketing phases? Whoa, Jill thinks for a minute and says, well, let me see. I'm going to need some more information. But the puck cuts her off. Sorry, <laughs> it's a Canadian AI. Sorry, but there were signs our competitor was going to move into this area, so I did it anyway. Pre-sales are already up 0.7%. Now at this point, I move away from the skit area of the stage to give a visual indication that I'm going to be talking about something else. And of course, this is delivered at TEDx Bear Creek Park, which is Surrey, south of Vancouver in British Columbia. So it's a Canadian live audience, and that was just cracking a joke there that usually works even for non-Canadian audiences. So here I'm giving in a very compressed fashion an idea of what life could be like when AIs are making things go even faster, in this case for a CEO, which is that the acceleration of the rate of doing business from artificial intelligence could mean that normal functions of a C-suite of evaluating sales and design and marketing potential could happen in real time in seconds instead of days. And so the AI might well learn in real time during a conversation that there were signs that a competitor was going to advance into the space that it had been proposing so that it should then go ahead and do what it was suggesting anyway thereby taking that decision away from Jill. So what's her role now? Let's go back to the talk. If that smug little puck is right even most of the time, what's Jill supposed to do? Particularly if her competitor's CEO just went to the golf course and left his puck on full automatic so it didn't even have to wait for his approval? Okay, now I've given voice to what the audience was surely thinking, which was, if the puck can make those decisions anyway, what is the point of having Jill there? And if her competitor has already arrived at that decision, then their business is going to be moving even faster because there's no human in the loop. I believe this is a very likely scenario. And it could almost certainly be done today. It's only the fact that the C-suite is in charge of the business and considers themselves to be responsible for a lot of things that could be automated, frankly, right now, that it isn't happening as fast as it could. Now, it was pointed out to me in evaluations that, hey, this doesn't sound so bad. And I had forgotten to say why it was a problem. So here we go back to the talk. And what is the problem with this? Oh, sure. That looks good for him now. But how long until his board of directors or hers decides they're no longer worth as much as they're being paid? If that's the future waiting for CEOs, what are we creating for the me and you's? As technology gets incomprehensibly faster, what will become of our pace of work? What will become of our place at work? Okay, that's my attempt to encapsulate what you've just heard in a single soundbite. We're talking about the pace of work becoming too fast for us to adapt to. And we're talking about our place at work being called into question. As you heard me talk about in episode 27, the entire rest of the talk was rewritten at this point. 
after discovering that the extended metaphor I had, which was about a river and climbing a mountain and never mind, that's for another day, was not conveying the message that I wanted. So let's go back to what I actually did say. We've been running faster and faster on our hamster wheels for so long, we've not noticed that now technology is the one spinning the wheels. If you're running that rat race so your company can beat the competition through superior technology, then what is the prize? Okay, so here I'm trying to wake people up to realize that they may be caught in this cycle. Technology is now spinning the hamster wheel. And there is a nice and I think accidental tie in there with rat race. But then I tie that into what is the prize for working faster? Reminds me of a Dilbert strip where the boss tells Dilbert that the company did very well and I got a 15% management bonus for working hard. And then Dilbert says, what's my bonus for having done so much work? And the boss says, more work. How many of us can or will be able to relate to that? Back to the talk and now an illustration. How might technology spin those wheels faster? We're now implanting computers the size of a rice grain in everyday things, spoons, pill bottles, keys, so we can connect them to the network and make them smart. That there is a reference to the Internet of Things and how we are able to connect all kinds of devices to the Internet and these will become increasingly smaller. Now I'm going to extrapolate that trend. Within a few years, everything our phones need to do will fit in an equally small space. But then it would be rather easy to lose in the kitchen drawer, yes? Okay, now we're going to have a joke so that I can insert something serious. Don't worry, we'll solve that problem by keeping them in here. And I'm pointing to my head. We'll all be able to hear voices in our head. By that point, we'd better have this relationship with artificial intelligence worked out, or the way in which technology sets the pace of life will take on a whole new meaning. All right, so there I have given the information that we are working on brain-computer implants. They may be a few years off. They're harder to do than they look, but we're going in that direction. By the time our phones fit into a rice grain size area, and that is at most 30 years away, probably much, much sooner, then we will have brain-computer implants, and the logical place to put those phones or their equivalent will be inside our heads. So our brains become the peripherals. No need to have a display, a keyboard. And by cracking the joke about hearing voices in our head, I have suggested what that interface will look like. But now, if we don't work out our relationship with technology, how fast is work likely to be being driven by... Think of the prospect of instant messages from your boss arriving in your head at any point. We're already unable to turn off our Slack and Jabber feeds, right? So here I've given the essential core problem that the audience as a conscious futurist, and that's a term I'm about to introduce, will have to solve. But I've already told them they can solve it. Now let's get back to the talk where I'm going to establish the context for this and make it clear. This isn't just about work-life balance. When AI gets so fast it outstrips our ability to adapt, it will trigger an existential crisis. And I can use that term because I told them earlier what an existential threat was. It's pretty clear that if AI is going faster than we can adapt to it, we have some kind of existential crisis. But I need to balance that assertion to take this out of the realm of being lumped in with Terminator scenarios. Here we go. 
Now, despite what I just said, we are not in a duel with AI because it really can create utopia. It is a partnership. And in any partnership, both sides need to adapt. But when they get it right, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. We've begun to experience the benefits of this. As AI holds up a mirror to us, it forces us to ask what it means to be human. Who do you want to be in that future? Now, here I've introduced some of the core philosophical drivers of artificial intelligence. More than one researcher has said they work on AI because the more they learn about that, the more they learn about themselves. And as AI gets faster, automates more jobs, we will increasingly be forced to ask ourselves, what does it mean to be human? Here, I'm giving the audience a chance to start thinking about that and realizing that that is a question that the sooner they ask, the better. Now, I've got to show them a way out. As hard as that is, so here we go. To avoid the crisis, we need to become conscious futurists. Start with a personal vision where you draw the lines between what you want technology to do for you and what you want for yourself. For instance, letting AI answer the phone when telemarketers call, yes. Getting it to talk to your spouse, no. Keeping track of your workouts, yes. Keeping you at a desk instead of going to the gym, no. Printing paycheck stubs, yes. Letting someone know they've been laid off? No. Okay, so there we have a little bit of fun, some examples. They get some laughs about how to draw the boundaries. And it's more important that they get the idea that they should start drawing those boundaries. They should look to see, well, what do I want? What is my core competency? What is my purpose in life? What am I good at and I want to do, whether or not a machine can do it as well? These are questions that people and businesses will have to ask. And I'm about to talk about businesses. Back to the talk. Extend that thinking into the workplace to make conscious futurism an integral function of your business. Don't assume that disruption can't affect you. Educate yourself about technology trends within your industry. Maybe you create a department of futuring or appoint a chief futurism officer. Their job and yours will be to decide what you will automate and what fulfills your people. Okay, so there I have extended the same ideas that I've been talking about for individuals to businesses. And now I'm going to tell them what it takes to do that. Give those people, your fellow futurists, the time to do conscious futuring. We've been using more and more technology in the belief that it would give us more and more time, and instead it's left us with less and less. If you don't think that technology has yet given you the freedom to allow people time to see the big picture, then when is it supposed to? So that was another cry from the heart there, directed at people who are working on automatic, going on momentum, driven by what's worked in the past in their businesses, which is reacting to technology acceleration of pace as though it were a temporary thing, because it hasn't been going on that long at this intensity. And thinking, well, if we can just keep up, if we can just do the same thing only faster, then we'll have time for brainstorming, strategic planning, and thinking about our purpose and mission after that. And I'm saying, no, you've got to do that now. It's not going to get any easier. Back to the talk. Remember, both employees and managers are going to have to keep up with those pucks. So if you haven't started asking those questions and making those decisions now, it's going to get exponentially harder. We're all in this together. 
So reach across organizational hierarchies and ask each other, how do you see us thriving in a future of smart machines? And how could we get off those hamster wheels to do that? All right, now here you can tell that I'm getting near the end, so it's important to leave them with a core message and the most powerful statement that I can. We fooled ourselves that the rules of this world were made by a few politicians, captains of industry, and thought leaders. But they didn't decide by themselves how we would use technology. We all made those decisions together. Consciously, we can change them. It won't be easy. But utopia has to be earned. When a handful of futurists predict the future, they disagree. When all of us are futurists, we won't predict the future. We'll create it. And then we really will know where we're going. Okay, so there you have it. There you saw the life cycle of a TEDx talk, an insight into how it was created, and some of the background that illustrates why I was doing it and more depth about what it means. In next week's episode, I'll get into some of the technology of artificial intelligence as it exists currently, so we can get an idea of what it's currently capable of doing, and also what it's currently not capable of doing. That's next week on AI and You. Until then, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Crisis of Control and see more videos and articles at AINU.net. That's A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U.net, where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening.